Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker will be speaking to Dr. Zach Soler about his article, Effects of Endoscopic Sinus Surgery on Objective and Subjective Measures of Cognitive Dysfunction in Chronic Rhinosinusitis. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Storrs Endoscopy America. Carl Storrs enables anywhere care with the new flexible slimline video rhino laryngoscope. This slimline scope with its portable monitor enables early diagnosis and early intervention to help improve patient care and reduce cost. Visit www.carlstores.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. David Petker, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Zachary Soler from the Medical University of South Carolina on his paper entitled, Effects of Endoscopic Sinus Surgery on Objective and Subjective Measures of Cognitive Dysfunction in Chronic Rhinosinusitis. Zach, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, interesting topic. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in this and not only the otolaryngology and rhinology world, but also in just the uh, the lay public and society. How did you get uh, interested in cognitive dysfunction and what led you up to this study? This is something that has interested me for a while. You know, I had patients for a long time say, they would come in and say, you know, I'm tired, I feel run down, or I feel, you know, foggy-headed, or I have trouble concentrating. And, you know, I always wondered whether this was you know, just kind of a a vague sensation or whether there really was cognitive changes that might be happening. So, you know, the whole kind of impetus for this was to explore that symptom more. You wrote a paper in uh, in 2015 on cognitive dysfunction. Give us kind of the the Cliff's notes on that study. Presumably that was the springboard for this study. Yeah, so that, that first study we designed as a case control study. So we enrolled patients with sinusitis and we enrolled a group of controls, patients with without sinusitis, but of similar age and gender and all that. And we basically gave them questionnaires and also did computerized cognitive testing. And sure enough, we found that there were not just patient-reported, but actually objective differences in the performance of those with sinusitis versus control. So, you know, it doesn't prove it, but certainly it suggested that some of these complaints that people have actually are grounded in, in real changes. So they're not just making it up. They're not faking it. Exactly. And, you know, we always wonder when people say that their quality of life is impacting, you wonder what is actually driving some of that. I mean, certainly some of it is congestion and stuffiness, but I think a lot of it is actually this type of thing where they just feel run down and tired, trouble concentrating, and that probably is what leads to things like productivity loss that we see where people, they're at work, but they're just not functioning at a high level. Right. You even see that on some of the ads on TV with mental fogginess or living in a fog thing. Now, you had mentioned this current study about a significant number of patients that, that have those complaints. What are the numbers? I mean, is this, I mean, we've all seen it, and I know it's a good percentage, but do they have those numbers broken down? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's a hard thing to, I guess, dichotomize to say, okay, who who has cognitive dysfunction or who who feels like they do or don't, because there, there, it isn't like a an all-or-none phenomenon there's gradations of this. So, you know, there's a questionnaire that we use called the Cognitive Failures Questionnaire that's not specific to sinusitis, but it just kind of asks some of these questions. But but even that doesn't necessarily have a hard cutoff where you can say, if your score is this, then you quote-unquote have failures. It's kind of similar to the SNOT-22 or a quality life questionnaire where certainly higher is worse than better, but there isn't always sort of a clear-cut cutoff. So I don't have, you know, a great sense 
to say like it's 50% or it's 80%, but certainly on average patients complain of this. Explain that cognitive failure questionnaire. You know, it says that in, in the manuscript that there are questions that measure cognitive failures. What is that exactly that does that mean? Asking them in in the last couple of weeks, an example would be, did you misplace your keys and weren't able to find them? Or were you able to not remember something that you might have you know, easily been remembered? It's questions like that that just kind of get at this fogginess or lack of concentration. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks that sinusitis somehow impairs your high-level cognitive function, you know, your ability to perform tasks and stuff like that. It's more of just that subtle stuff, kind of like if you had really poor sleep or if you were, you know, running on two hours of sleep or you've been working for 30 hours, you start to see those decrements. I think that's what it's trying to get at. So give us a synopsis of, uh, of the current study. What did you find in this manuscript or this article? This study was basically asking the question of if we think people have cognitive dysfunction at baseline, does, does it get better after we do sinus surgery on them? It really was just a prospective outcome study where the focus was on cognitive function. We had 35 patients that we enrolled. All of them had sinusitis and had failed their medical management and were booked for surgery, essentially. So we recorded their baseline disease severity metrics, like typical stuff. But then they filled out the questionnaire, the cognitive failures questionnaire, and then we did a computerized battery of cognitive tests. We use this platform called ANAM, or A-N-A-M, which stands for Automated Neurometric Assessment Matrix. It's it's a mouthful, but essentially this is a, a program that was developed for the U.S. military. So when service members go overseas, I think beginning in the Iraq War, they give them this, this sort of battery of tests at baseline, and then they are able to use this after, you know, to manage things like PTSD or if there was any sort of traumatic brain injury or whatever that they would have a before and then an after. And it's cool because it's, it's a battery of tests that you could do on a computer, and it has a lot of normative data as well. Everybody got that at baseline. They went on and had surgery like normal, and then we looked at them at follow-up, and I think it was an average of almost nine months follow-up. I think they had to at least have four months, but it's sort of in that six-month plus or minus window when people come in, and then we repeated everything. So they had the questionnaire again, then they did the computerized testing again, and then we basically just compared pre-op to post-op in these patients. Now, the 2015 study, you showed that your patients without nasal polyps had worse cognitive failure questionnaires than the patients with polyps, but that pattern didn't repeat in the current study. Why do you think that was? Well, I think some of it probably has to do with sample size. You know, we have 35 patients and so there's not actually a, a huge sample size to go off. And I think there there was some disease severity differences between the groups, I think. I think this, this NOT22 was higher. But essentially, yeah, it didn't play out quite the same. But we did see some differences when you looked at outcomes across the groups. Interesting. Between, between um, those with and without polyps. I suppose it, those are the kind of things you need several hundred patients to really try to uh, sort out. That's the challenge of this type of study. I mean, if you want to... I always try to be the harshest critic of of our own work, and the sample size on this is not huge. I mean, it's 35 patients, right? We all know sinusitis is a heterogeneous disease. There's so much Mm -hmm. variability in in a lot of that. The challenge with this is just it's like anything. When you you think about it and you design it, it seems easy, and then when you try to carry it out, it's so much work to actually do the computerized testing. I mean, it takes these patients between the questionnaires and – 
the computer testing me, you're looking at at least an hour. So when the patient comes into clinic and they've already driven hours to get there and you've done your assessment right. and all that, then you ask them to do a whole another hour. So it makes it challenging to actually enroll these patients. Did you have a lot of people that dropped out of that study? I don't remember seeing that. Isn't necessarily a dropout. I mean, we had we had 35 enrolled and we had follow-up data on 33, although only 24 out of 35, almost close to 70% did the re- repeat computer testing just because not all of them are physically, they have to physically come to our a, a specific downtown I location. See. So we had about 30% follow-up. But it's more about just, you know, you have somebody who qualifies, all right, they have sinusitis, they're going to have surgery, they're a perfect candidate, they meet the inclusion criteria, but they're just like, sorry, I don't have an extra hour to spend with you today. So then mm-hmm. they just don't enroll. Now, you touched on the cytokine model of cognitive function in the, in the discussion of this. I thought that was fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when you look at, you know, you mentioned before about some differences between the polyp and the non-polyp in prior studies. I mean, if you look at this, overall, we found improvement in a couple of the objective computerized tests. So we saw mathematical processing get better. We saw a test called matching the sample get better. And if you actually split it up into the polyp and the non-polyp group, it's really the non-polyp group that's driving a lot of this. I mean, I think if you had sample sizes were big enough, we'd probably see changes in the polyp group as well. But certainly, I think the non-polyp group is stronger. And it kind of makes sense a little bit if you think about it, if you just step away and, and ask patients with polyps, they tend to have a different symptom complex overall. You know, that they're they're focused kind of on congestion and maybe smell loss, and they don't necessarily have pain and pressure as much. In my mind, it kind of makes sense that the non-polyp group tends to be the ones that complain about some of this. But when you think about why that might be throughout this concept that, you know, the cytokine profile overall, on average, tends to be different with, you know, polyps being more type 2 or TH2 skewed and the non-polyp being more of a mixed and and teach one, and we wonder whether the differences in cytokine might drive some of this, and certainly there's this idea of sickness cytokines and cytokines that make you feel kind of tired and run down, and we've all had an acute viral infection and felt awful, and a lot of that has to do with the cytokines which are driving you to feel bad. Now, this study doesn't prove any of that. We didn't sort of talk about this in paper, but actually collected middle medial mucus on these patients for cytokine analysis, and we actually did. I've run some of that, although the unfortunate thing is we just don't have the actual power because I didn't get not everybody who enrolls then agrees to let us do the mucus cytokine sampling right. and you have all that. So the the power isn't there to do what I really wanted to do, which was to show this and then to try to tie a specific cytokine profile to this, so that we have that pilot data for the future if mm-hmm. if ever this takes the next step. That would be very cool. Zach, I got a question for you. For several years, I was on our hospital's credentialing committee, and the idea came up of cognitive testing for more senior physicians. It was proposed, but on the committee, there's a clinical psychologist, and he said that cognitive testing is just fraught with problems and uh, uh, and issues, and, and there's very little consistency, even from person the same person taking the test multiple times. Is that something that the ANAM has had a problem with or the, the CFQ have had problems with? Or is that a completely different uh, type of testing from what uh, what you did? It's a good question. I mean, that a skeptic could look at this and say, okay, you did baseline testing. You gave them a, a set of tests that they were not that familiar with. And then 
they came back and did it a second time, and you would say, hey, maybe they simply just got better at taking the test. I mean, most of us, when we see something another time, would get better. The test has some stuff built in to try to reduce that, where they train you on it, and they kind of get you to try something, each of the tests a, a few times, and kind of get to a plateau. It tends to get rid of some of that. And because they've used this on a huge sample size, I mean, they've shown that it has reasonably good test-retest reliability and all that. So for me, though I'm all, always still skeptical, I'm like, you know, maybe they just got better on it. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me is that pretty much everything got better except one test, which was the simple reaction time, which actually got worse. Right. And right. in some ways, that's a test that you think would get better just by practicing because you sort of get used to doing it. That is the issue, I think, at times with some of these computer tests. But, you know, there's no other real way around it. I mean, the human tests have their own issues, and certainly we would never have been able to do this if we had to have a human person administering all these tests. Now, also in the discussion, you talk about future work that could potentially involve a placebo-controlled treatment group. How in the world would you design that type of study? We wrote that just trying to say, look, I mean, obvious limitation of this is we don't have a control group. So when mm -hmm. you don't have a control group, it's hard to prove that what you're seeing here is from your treatment specifically. That being said, I mean, everybody who read that probably said, well, that yeah, that's just the standard thing you say, but you're, you're never going to be able to do that. And that's the honest truth. I mean, we're never going to be able to carry out a randomized clinical study on this, but that would be what you would need to do to sort of take this from, oh, that's interesting pilot data and that's a nice association, mm -hmm. but it doesn't prove anything. And that's true. Give us a little insight. Jeremiah Alt at Utah has done some work with patient pain and cognitive function. Now, you did not look at that in your study, correct? Correct. And, and how do you figure that, or how do you think that figures in to this? Would you say that yeah. that could potentially have any impact on, on your results? In my mind, there's sort of a constellation of things that are separate but clearly go together. So, for example... In this study, we looked at sleep quality using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. We looked at depression using the Beck Depression Inventory. We looked at fatigue using a scale and some smell-related issues as well. You know, because the idea is, what is, you know, it's an interesting question of what is the mechanism of the cognitive loss? Like, mm -hmm. we talked about the cytokine being an issue, but you could also say, well, maybe they're not functioning at a high level because they don't sleep well, so their sleep quality is off, or maybe they're not functioning at a high level because they're depressed. So that's why we looked at those other things, because they're interrelated, and they also could potentially explain the mechanism. So when we were proposing this study and designing it, we said, okay, what are the mechanisms of this? Well, maybe it's cytokines, so we planned on doing a cytokine analysis. Maybe it's sleep quality, so we planned on doing that. Maybe it's depression. So we collected all that stuff, then what you sort of find out is that you probably don't have the actual sample size to, to really be able to pull each of those things out to say, okay, the change in cognitive function that you're seeing is really being driven by poor sleep quality or really being mm -hmm. driven by depression. And I think probably the reality is that all of these things kind of swirl together in that yeah. when you have sinusitis, you have some you know, low-level depression issues, you have sleep quality issues, you have these cognitive function, and, and it's probably all kind of going out. And whether we can really tease it out or not, I'm not sure, but I think they're interrelated. And pain would be one of those things that goes into the mix of all that. So the question I really want to ask you and I really want to know is, is sinus surgery going to make me smarter? <laughs> what about better at math? The The answer is, I think, unfortunately, no. What about my son? Would it make my son better at math? Because he needs any help he can get. 
you will not have to hire a tutor anymore. We just need to operate <laughs> on the sinuses. Even if the sinuses are normal looking, it will make you smarter. Perfect. All right. So before I go, first of all, great stuff. I always enjoy reading your work. You've done a, a tremendous work over the years. But before I, I let you go, I'm going to have a, or I have a trivia question for you. All right. Okay. Just to make it a little bit more fun for the listener. Now, you're a few years younger than me, so you may not have seen all of John Hughes' movies. John Hughes, uh, Weird Science, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, all of those. He, he made all of those movies. And they're all set in the same fictional city in Illinois. What is the name of that city? Chicago? It is not Chicago. It is Shermer, Shermer, Illinois. Is where Ferris all of Bueller is set in Chicago, though. Yeah, but he went to Shermer High School. He did. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, I failed that one. That's okay. That's okay. Alex Chu did far worse, so uh, so don't feel bad. All right. Well, Zach, I'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us, and, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you to the listeners for joining us on another episode of Scope It Out. Zach, thanks, and take care. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.